Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Judges 15. We are back into our studying of our um, daily discipleship reading. Um, and this is part two of what we did Wednesday evening. Remember, Wednesday we looked at the first half of the story of Samson. Um, and we want to finish that. So this is your reading from Thursday. Friday's reading was from Ruth. It's four chapters. I think that's the longest reading you'll have for the rest of the year, I think. Don't quote me on that. Um, uh, that is not um, uh, ex-cathedra statement there. But um, I thought it'd be best to read the book of Ruth in one sitting. Um, and we've looked at Ruth as a whole several times. So, uh, but we haven't looked at Samson. And Samson is a good story to look at as a whole. Um, and I think, I think the, the, the biblical writer wants us to, to do this. So let's do this. Um, let's read the first few verses of chapter 15. We'll make references as we go, but we'll be looking at chapters 15 and 16. Judges 15, if you will stand with me, reverence for God's word. We'll just read the first few verses. Again, we'll be looking at, at both chapters. But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go to my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Samson then said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to Philistines when I do them harm. Samson went and caught 300 foxes, took torches, and turned the fox's tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and, gro and groves. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. And that is the called man of God doing that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our fathers, always we ask that you would be so kind to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we will go and be just to Christ. Uh, what a tough story we are looking at here. Here is one called by God, set apart by God as a Nazarite. And yet he seems to go out of his way to do the opposite of what it is he is called to do. But there is beauty in the story, if we would see it, not as the story of Samson, but the story of the Lord. So help us as we struggle with the story, that we would see the glory of the cross. And may I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. It was several years ago. Um, I might actually have been still at Greenham Fork, um, so still in college, early seminary, whatever, um, but I remember there seemed to have been a number of, of um, public scandals involving uh, national political figures. And uh, most of them were uh, in some form or fashion unfaithful to their marriage. Some were financial. But, but it just it seemed like when, when one scandal seemed to die down a little bit, the next scandal came. And when it started to die down, the next scandal came. And I know part of that is just how media functions. You have to have a villain. You have to have a hero. And you have to uh, sell ads. I, I get that. But it seemed to have been just all of a sudden a bunch of individual personal scandals in, in, in the media. And then there was, and they were all involving men, and there was a congresswoman that was being interviewed on the news. And, and you can see her incredulity in that she, she's like, I, I don't understand what it is that's going on. Myself and some of the other congresswomen of both parties, we, 
We'll stand on the outside of these press conferences where these congressmen are having to uh, confess what has happened and, and apologize for the victims and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and yet we, we look at each other and we, we say, why is this so hard to figure out? It's always men. It's always congressmen who are going through this. How come they and not us? Now, although I think that is a simple narrative, I think it's a reasonable one. You think of all the great scandals of the United States, the world, they're typically involving men, public scandals, powerful men who can yield armies and, and destroy nations and yet are too weak to control themselves. Great power, yet great weakness. History is full of these examples. Perhaps no story demonstrates that best for us in the Bible than that of Samson. Just to review what we looked at Wednesday uh, quickly, we, we began uh, the story and it, op- it begins with great expectation, right? Chapter 13 this is the birth narrative of Samson. Uh, his story is similar to the birth of Isaac and Jacob and Samuel and John the Baptist. I really think John the Baptist is sort of, uh, his story is similar, and yet he, he's everything Samson should have been, uh, beard and all. Um, but nevertheless, we, we get great hope. He, he takes the Nazarite vow. And yet, as the story unfolds, he is anything but liberated and strong. Rather, he is enslaved to his various passions and lusts. And that begins in chapter 14. We saw that he struggled with the sin of entitlement. Remember, he says, go get me that woman there. Right? Didn't ask. Right? I mean, you try that. Right? Go back to your teenage years. Right? Get in that time machine and say, Dad, go get me that woman. Then tell that woman that you told your dad that and see how, how she, she might respond. But, but even though he's told this isn't the will of God, this isn't what the Bible says, he is defiant. I am entitled to this woman. And then that leads to the story of disobedience, right? You remember where he, he fights the lion? The lion stands in ambush. That's an important detail. Stands in, 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 in ambush and, and he, he kills the lion. And there is a carcass. He later takes the honey out. And that, of course, is a violation of the vow. You're not to touch a carcass. He likely violates the vow regarding wine because he goes into the wedding feast and everything else. And, and of course, as you know, in chapter 16, he will cut his hair. So, so, so by chapter 14, just, just, it's not just that he is disobedient obedient, but that he is openly unapologetic in his disobedience. And then is the issue of pride. Convinced he is wiser than his peers, he tells a riddle and is later manipulated by his bride-to-be. And then finally, anger at the end of chapter 14. Remember how he responds to uh, his, his fiance uh, emotionally manipulating him and uh, the, 30, uh, the 30 men discovering uh, the, the riddle? Remember what he does? He travels nearly 25 miles to another town where they don't know him. He slaughters 30 men and takes off their expensive clothes and uses it as payment for losing the bet. That's anger. That's revenge. It's wrath. And so by the end of chapter 14, he has lost his bride, his reputation, his temper, his character, and his calling. And for some, this would be a sort of rock bottom, but not for Samson. He continues down this dangerous path that hurts countless others, including himself, and so what Samson models for us, and, and among other things, is what leadership looks like without godly character. He is called by God, but lacks the character of God. And as a result, everyone around him suffers. And so we see a few other of these great sins. The first is 
malice. Now, this, of course, is connected to what is we saw at the end of chapter 14. He goes out and kills 30 men of Ashkelon. Well, now this, is, this gets ratcheted up even more. It was anger. Now that anger turned bitterness has led him down a path of malice. Now, let's be honest. There's countless ways to express one's anger. You can beat your chest. You can raise your voice. You can slam a door. You can seek revenge. You can turn to violence. And the inability to move forward will result in the end in malice, lashing out, burning bridges, making enemies, demonstration of violence. Samson has already demonstrated rage, again, by killing those 30 men. But now he ratches up his anger and turns to petty, destructive violence. I got to be honest with you. When I was reading through this, this story this week, I thought, how have I missed this story about the foxes? Now, you, you, you met my youth pastor here this morning, and, and he, he did children's church. And in children's church, um, if, if someone will, just open up these doors. I try to get the air conditioner. If you can fix the air conditioner, by all means, um, <laughs> have at it. Uh, I don't know what buttons I, I should have pushed. Um, I hit colder on it or you know temperature down, but I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, um, you thought it was hot this morning. It's about, you know, go fire and brimstone. Anyways, um, but... Uh, but we, what we would do when, when Robbie would, would teach children's church is we would do, uh, for 15 minutes, we would do the story, Samson in, in this case, and then we will watch 15 minutes of a certain cartoon series on that story. And Samson was one of them. And, and it did a whole story. I do not remember this part of that cartoon. I think that's why it just didn't click, right? And I've read Samson a thousand times like you have, but, but I do not remember this part of the story. He takes a host of foxes, turns their tails in the torches and destroys grains and fields and private property. That, that, that is more than a strongly worded tweet. Right, that, that can be anger. That can be frustration. That can be carelessness, foolishness. This is malice. In fact, his, his father tries to sees that Samson, although he seemingly has cooled off because he hasn't truly forgiven or, or, or come to, to deal with, with his anger issues, it, it's ratcheted up again, but now it's even worse. So his father does, does what, what is completely turned. His father says, you shouldn't be with these women. Now he says, here, this woman is better. You still shouldn't be with this woman, but he's trying to sedate Samson's rage. Of course, that isn't how you solve such anger problems. Samson feels he's been wronged and nothing but revenge will satisfy his rage. And this is the problem. Forgiveness frees us and protects others. So important to see. No doubt he is wounded, perhaps justifiably feeling wounded. But choosing malice will ruin a lot of lives. That is true with the ancient Philistines take over of Israel. It is true in the 21st century. And so he weaponizes these foxes by lighting their tails on fire and destroying a lot of property. This is malice. It is irrational, often violent, and destructive. I think the best illustration for malice in the modern world comes from a country music song. But you probably already knew that, right? This isn't, I, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. That's a different word, right? That's just evil. But it's a more modern country song that goes something like this. I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive. Right? You know where this is going? It's Carrie Underwood. Wood. Carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger. Sorry, Carrie. He's not Louisville. 
took my Louisville Slugger to both headlights. I slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Of course, every country girl loves that song, right? Hey, hey, honey, honey, I want you, I want you to hear this song and be warned, right? Right? That's, that's, that's why it's a popular song. It's catchy and it's got some humor in it. It's also a bit of a warning, right? That's malice, right? You know, taking the keys to someone's car, destroying personal property, uh, being driven by rage. Now, notice what the Philistines do. They, they don't see the property destroyed like, oh, I get it. We shouldn't have gone so far. Guess that's the end of that. Has that ever happened in your life? No. They do what always happens. Acts of vengeance stir acts of revenge. This is, by the way, the Beowulf conundrum, right? Y'all know this is my favorite story. Is it's, a, it's a problem with Vikings. So you get to the end of the story and he fights the dragon. Where did the dragon get all of his gold? He stole it. Well, before that, you meet the kings and, they, and they're passing out all this gold. Well, where did those kings get their gold? They stole it. The whole point is, is that, that these kings and these Vikings are no different than the dragon. One we see as a monster, the other we need to see as monsters. This pattern of behavior, of revenge, and, and whatnot need, needs to stop. Uh, this is also what fuels the Hatfield McCoys, right? Historians to this day struggle with the true genesis of that feud. Was it related to the Civil War, perhaps? Did it have to do with, with a pig? Possibly. Did it have to do with the first murder of, of a Union soldier who was McCoy? Perhaps. But it, it could be all the above. I don't know. Um, I've shared this before. If Every time I, I read and, and follow the story of Hatfield McCoys, I get to the end, I think, well, that makes sense. Those who live by the Winchester will eventually die by the Winchester. One act of violence means we have to up the violence, which means I have to up the violence, which means I have to up the violence. That is Viking syndrome. And the Philistines literally fight fire with fire by burning this family to death. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. The Bible condemns malice and the bitter heart that feeds it. Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Oh, along with all malice. Just, just, just so you know that, that it's there, right? Of course, if you put away anger and wrath and bitterness, you won't come to the point of malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. You see the difference? You can choose the way of anger and eventual violence, verbally or physically or otherwise, or you can choose kindness. One of those will end a cycle of malice. The other will make it worse. James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I mean, that should be obvious, shouldn't it? Have you ever been in a private home where someone lost their temper and you thought, oh, now I have a better understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ? No. Anger never produces righteousness, nor does it point us to the righteous one. Always the opposite. Psalm 37, 8, refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. So he struggles not just with malice, but of course, chapter 16, he struggles with lust. Following his outburst, Samson crawls into the arms of a woman. 
here is one of the greatest weaknesses of a man. Lonely men are easy prey. Wounded men are easy prey. What Samson thinks is a reprieve will turn into his ultimate downfall. Can I just add a footnote here? I always feel like this is necessary to point out because I find particularly young women struggle to see this. Men can separate love and intimacy quite easily. They always have. Women cannot. Really is the gift of women and the gift of marriage. Men can easily separate these two. He doesn't love Delilah, but he needs Delilah. And she will use that vulnerability for her benefit. You see, Samson may be physically strong, but he is spiritually morally weak. Delilah is physically strong, but she uses her seduction as her own wicked strength against him, proving she is stronger than him. So what the Gazites do is they take advantage of Samson's vulnerability, verses 2 and 3, and they plan an ambush. Remember, he's already been ambushed once by a lion, right? And he came out on top of that. Now he's being ambushed again, and it's by men. He should be able to handle them quite well. In fact, several times in this chapter, he handles them quite easily until Delilah finally wins out. Well, in verses 2 and 3, he fights them off by ripping the doors off the hinges. I remember that from the cartoon. That was always cool to me. Um, nevertheless, his dalliance has nearly cost him. Instead of reevaluating his choices, he doubles down. For Samson, perhaps his greatest weakness is that of women. And like many powerful women, it is his down, or powerful men, rather, it would be his, his downfall. And what you get in verses 4 to 6 is essentially the, the, the same retelling of, of the story, right? So chapter 16, verse 4, and this came about. He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him, see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So you see the role of greed plays in this. It's always greed and intimacy that is the downfall of the human race. I mean, you, almost every time something falls apart, those two issues will pop up, one or both. Verse 6, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength is, how you may be bound to afflict you. Now, unlike Samson, these men have learned from their mistakes. They know that they're not going to be able to ambush him. But he could be seduced. And men under seduction will surrender anything for that drug. And he will surrender it all. So this is something that I've learned a lot in sports. In sports, if you're coaching, you know, and, and you're, you're thinking about your opponent, you can either focus on your opponent's strengths or you can focus on their weaknesses. For example, in basketball, if they have one player who you know is going to score 40 points, the plan could be you should stop him from scoring 40 points. Even if he scores 20, that's 20 points off the board. That, that, that's, that's successful, right? You could double team him. You could pressure. You could try to turn him over. You could foul him, put him on the, you know, whatever it might be. Another strategy could be you could focus on the weakness. If they're only scoring 50 points a game and 40 of it, or let's say 60 points a game and 40 of it's coming from one guy, if you stop the other players, they're only going to score 40 points. 
And this is oversimplification, of course. But if you can attack their weakness and use it to your strength, then, then you've, you've made them one-dimensional, right? This, this, this way. So they've already tried to attack the strength of Samson by attacking his little strength. They lie in ambush. They try to attack. He rips the door off the hinges and says, what now? Now, however, they will attack his weakness. So what you get is the series. Uh, verses 7 to 22 is an unfolding drama of Delilah seducing and emotionally manipulating Samson to surrender. Remember before, it was emotional manipulation. Why won't you tell me? Why won't you tell me? I need you to do this. Fix this problem. And on and on it went until he finally couldn't take it anymore. But this time it adds seduction. So verses 7 to 9, he claims that binding him with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried will weaken him. I have no idea what that means moving on. That didn't work. Verses 10 through, through 12, he then claims that fresh ropes will weaken him. That didn't work. Okay, so this is, <laughs> all right, uh, what, what's, what's the great President Bush quote, you know? Fool me once, shame, shame on me. Fool, fool me twice and uh, just, just don't do it again, right? I just love that quote. I just love it. I, I, could, I could watch that. That is as good, I've, I've shared this with you a thousand times before, as, the, as good as the one, the Bushism, I believe that man and the fish can coexist. I just, I just love that. I love that. What were we talking about? Um, so he's had two strikes, and he still hasn't. Notice how blind he is. He is blind to what should be reality. I bet he's got friends. They're like, Samson, come here, come here. What are you thinking? I'm noticing a pattern here, right? I'm sure his sister is saying, Samson, we love you. But you're cray-cray, right? Can't you see what's happening here? Right? He is so blind, so blind, because he believes she fixes something in him. He's lonely, he's wounded, and she has come in that moment of vulnerability, and she has him. So the third time, verses 13 through 14, he claims weaving his hair in a particular way will weaken him. Um, um, no doubt it's a, uh, what is, what is it these young men are doing that I can't stand? They put their hair back, um, almost like a ponytail. I don't know. It would work. I could tell the joke if I can think of the term. Anyways, um, this too proves all. That's three strikes. And by this point, the reader is clearly picking up on a clear pattern. If we can see it, why can't he? Well, verses 15 to 22 is the final surrender. Notice the language, verse 15 of chapter 16. She said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Now, we need to note here the, 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 the basis of their love is physical exclusively. Now, he may think it is love, but it is not. It, it is, it, true intimacy has to move deeper than physical intimacy. has to. It must involve spiritual intimacy if you want it to be real deep intimacy. How could you say you love me when your heart is not with me? You've deceived me these three times. Let, let, let's, let's be honest. Ladies, can, can we just... <laughs> if the dude is lying to you these three times, he ain't different today than he was yesterday. You, sh you, you should pick up on that pattern. I feel like that should be a little footnote there, right? I mean, for some reason, women will believe, of course he cheated on her, but I'm different, right? <laughs> he never did that to me. You will, though. You know, it's... Anyways... So how can you say you love me when, when your heart is from me? You deceive me these three times. Have not told me where your great strength is. 
And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul, here's, here's the Nazbi, was annoyed to death. Anyone got the ESV? It says vexed to death. I don't know which term I like better. Vexed. You, you see, the seduction can only get her so far. Now must, she must return to the age-old practice of emotional manipulation. I must wear him down to the point he feels like that, 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 that I must surrender. Remember what, what we said Wednesday night about this sort of attack upon men. Whenever men are particularly emotionally manipulated, particularly in a marriage relationship or a romantic relationship, it is a lose-lose scenario. If he raises his voice and defends himself and fights back, he's abusive. If he surrenders, he feels as if a major part of his masculinity has been left behind. There is, this is a lose-lose situation for him. And so she will wear him out. Reminds me of what Solomon says, not Kyle, but Solomon in Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. This is exactly what is happening here. She will not give up until he gives in. This isn't love. It's sin. So verse 17 he surrenders. He told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come to my head. For I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I'm shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. You know what sticks out to me about that phrase? He is just like any other man, isn't he? This whole time he thought his strength defined him. So he left behind his integrity. And by leaving behind his integrity, he looks more like the average man than any other dude. It wasn't his hair that set him apart. It wasn't his strength that set him apart. He was called to be a Nazarite because his character was supposed to set him apart. Well, fittingly, when the... Philistines ambush him, verses 18 to 22, they bind him. Ironically, it is this act that allows him to see what has happened. Notice verse 22. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Did you notice there who is blind now? See, it was Samson. And when his hands are bound and he cannot be set free, now he sees. But now that the Philistines are the strong ones, it's amazing how quickly they are so blind. Well, I want to finish here with, this is really a story of grace. It is the story of a downfall of a man. It's a tragic story. It's a terrible story. But if you read to the end, it's a beautiful story. That there is grace even through this moral nonsense and foolishness that goes on here. If the story ended there, it would just be a disappointment. At best, a real-life parable. But the ending points us to grace. So what you get in verses 23 to 27 is the Philistines gather to worship their false gods of, um, of, of, of Dagon. Of course, Dagon will, in 1 Samuel, will actually... Um, uh, its, head, its head will be severed. That, that's, 
I wish we had time for that, but it's hot. So let's move forward. And the way they demonstrate that Dagon is greater than Yahweh is they bring Samson, the, the champion, out. And Samson, who's been blinded, of course, he, when he could see, he was blind, but now he's been blinded, he sees. I mean, that's just beautiful storytelling. And he says, will you put me on the two major pillars just so I can brace myself? And no one thinks anything of it. Why? He's, he's weak. But they, too, are blind and they can't see his hair. And notice what happens starting in verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time. O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Notice there. What does Samson do? He humbly prays. Remember we said that the only person said to pray in Judges was his father in chapter 13? By the end of the story, what we see is finally Samson chooses to pray. He calls out to the Lord. And he confesses his sins, his weaknesses. And what he asks is for the Lord to be his strength. Now go back over the story. Every time Samson demonstrates strength, it is the Lord who rushes upon him. And now he realizes it was never my muscles that made me strong. It was the Lord. So here he humbly cries, Lord, make me strong, truly strong, that I can accomplish more in my weakness than I ever could in my strengths. You see the grace of the story? And so what does he do? A final act of sacrifice? He pushes down the pillars and both he and thousands of Philistines perish. All of this, from his birth to his death, I believe points us to Christ. Samson serves as the final official judge of the book of Judges. And what a terrible last example we have here, right? It's a terrible example. So by the end, Israel is in a bigger mess than it was when it began. In fact, if you read Judges, they they seem to get progressively worse because Israel gets progressively worse. So even though they're doing this, you know, they're, they're, they're holy and then they're in rebellion and then they're holy and they're in rebellion, it's really more like this. So even their moments of holiness aren't at the level, but their moments of depravity are worse. And that is seen in their leadership. Only I can think of a, of a good application there. Their leadership gets progressively worse. So you may start with people like Othniel and Shamgar and Ehud, who are simple men, who do simple acts. Yet we're, we're told they judge for 20 years and 40 years and 50 years, and God uses them mightily. But with each one, each one, we see weak men, uncertain men, questionable men, and on and on it goes until finally comes to Samson, and it's hard to find anything good about him. And so here he serves as the last one. Now, the ultimate last judge is Samuel in 1 Samuel. But in the book of Judges, this is it. Israel will now turn to civil war to finish out the book. This is a terrible ending for a story. But what we still see here is that because it ends in tragedy, the reader is left with hope. Please tell me, dear writer, it ends with hope. Please tell me there is good news at the end of the story. That's why I love Beowulf. It opens with a funeral and it ends in a funeral. And it ends with Wiglaf, Beowulf's friend, saying, now that he's dead, we'll all be slaughtered. That's the end of the story. 
And so the reader is left thinking, what will stop the cycle of violence? Here the reader is left asking, what will stop the cycle of evil from one generation to the next, from one leader to the next, from one judge to the next? Of course, I think the answer is Christ. Samson begins with a miraculous birth narrative. Two parents unable to conceive give birth to a son who is charged to redeem his people. Like Samson, Jesus himself enjoyed a miraculous birth. Two parents who cannot conceive yet bear a son who's called to redeem his people. Both Jesus and Samson were answers to Israel's bondage and both skipped the hero's childhood. Did you notice that? Chapter 16, he's born. Or chapter 13, he's born. Chapter 14, he's a grown man, ready to get married. So too in Christ, which you get is that frustrating part where we want to know what sort of a bratty teenager he was, right? We want to know what sort of high school he went to, what clique he was part of. We don't have any of that information. But it isn't the similarities we should be drawn to between Samson and Jesus. It It is the differences. Samson was strong enough to take a door off its hinges, but too weak to withstand temptation and folly. Jesus, on the other hand, was too weak to carry his own cross, it too made of wood, yet strong enough to forgive those who would nail him to it. Samson wrestled with lions. Jesus calmed the storm. Samson broke every vow. Jesus fulfilled the entire law. Samson surrendered to the wiles of Delilah. Jesus withstood Satan himself. Samson used his strength for his own benefit. Jesus, though weak, strengthened others. Samson died a failed martyr. Jesus died a triumphant savior. Like Samson, Jesus laid down his life, but he took his own life up again, triumphing over the grave, over sin, over Satan, and over men like Samson. At the end of the day, Samson was too weak to carry the weight of sin, despite how strong he thought he was, especially his own sin. But Jesus is mighty to save. Real strength is not in muscle size or communal power, which is good news for me, but in grace, humility, meekness, and love. Show me the man who has to buy the loudest truck in the county and drive around town in it. Show me the man who picks on others so that you will fear him, and I will show you a man who is weak. Show me a faithful man who quietly raises his children Loves his wife, works hard in humility and grace, and I'll show you a man of incredible strength. Isn't this what the New Testament tells us? Doesn't the New Testament look at us and say, we are weak and yet Christ is strong, therefore in Christ be strong? 1 Corinthians 1, 25, 27, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than man. But God chose what is foolish and weak in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. He's no biologist. And then he adds, be strong. You see it there? By the way, he's speaking to women too, but especially to men. Be strong in the faith. Act like godly men. And that is to be strong, not with muscle, not with might, but with love, meekness, humility, grace, forgiveness. 
It will take greater strength to forgive your enemy than it will to, 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 to fight him. 2 Corinthians 12, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, you know the rest, I am strong. You see how it turns everything on his head. This is why when the early church were being murdered in the streets, people saw them not as weaklings, but stronger than Caesar himself. It is easy to kill. It is hard to forgive. The weak fight. The strong love. Ephesians chapter 6. I believe y'all were probably in Ephesians 6 today with Robbie. I don't know. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The one too weak to carry a cross up a hill. It's strong enough to carry your sin. Be strong in the power of his mind. Let's pray. Father,